0: The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being your people and all that it means in terms of our new identity in Christ. Help me to accurately proclaim what's in your word, to encourage my brothers and sisters. Pray that it would be true. Pray that it would be profitable. And to you be the glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The theme of the conference of Who Am I is, I think we've all realized what an important theme it has been. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, perhaps the greatest weakness in the Christian church is that we fail to realize who we are. It is because we do not see ourselves as the children of God. That is why our unhappiness tends to get us down. We live too much with the things that are in front of us instead of putting everything in the context of our standing and our destiny. And as we've, in our previous plenary talks, we've had a discussion of things that happened to us in the past. You know, I am chosen from before the foundation of the world. I was a sinner and I still struggle with sin. I have been adopted as a child of God. I am being sanctified. I am united with Christ. And the original assignment given to me is, I am a saint. And as you see, others have already touched upon that. And I decided to move beyond our present status as saints, which actually uh, Jeremy and Deepak brought out some last night, to realize that there's a future aspect of being saints. And one example is in Daniel 7. It says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come then the sovereignty and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so my focus is on what we will be, not what we are already. And that is something that is wonderful, and it's something also which is life-transforming. Now, I also realize that as I'm bringing up what some would call the subject of eschatology or prophecy, that that is like walking through a landmine in some circles, because uh, among believers, different people have different particulars of what they believe about eschatology. And yet, historically, when you look at the great confessions like the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, even the Apostles' Creed, there's a fundamental agreement on the essence of what's in the future, even if people have uh, different charts in terms of exactly when, what happens. I really wanna try to avoid going beyond what the historic creeds would say, and I think something wonderful in, in our age is you have groups like the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, where you have people whose specifics on eschatology, on their interpretation of prophecy may differ a bit, but we can agree on the fundamentals and those fundamentals are really important. So I don't want to damage the unity we have in bringing this up, but it's, it's really important. And there, there are two major sections to what I, I want to bring out. And I, I really love Greg's approach where he was able to focus on a passage. My subject is one that's going to be taken more topically, and I'm going to be bouncing all over the place with lots of Scripture. But two main points. First is that you will be... A new person living in a new place when your sainthood is fully realized. And then the second part is going to be understanding some of the wonderful present implications of that as we live in this world. Now, when it comes to the subject of the afterlife, there have been people who have written books, you know, Five Minutes in Heaven. This child had allegedly this thing happened to him. There's speculation. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. And so we want to be very careful as we think of what is going to happen after we die not to engage in speculation. Will my pet be in heaven? You know, different silly questions like that. Uh, But there are things, the second half of Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are things we can know. It says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so it's it's good to think about what we will be and what it will be like. Uh, Three years ago, At this conference, I was aware that we were about to put all of our possessions into a moving van and drive across the country to live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, when you go to live in a new place and you know you're going to go somewhere else, you'd like to learn about it, right? And not everything we learned was good. We learned that it's 95 degrees and humid in Charlotte, North Carolina. But uh, J.C. Ryle talks about that. He says, the man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something of his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, and its customs. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in a better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to all seek the knowledge, all the knowledge we can get of it. And so you even read in the book of Hebrews is that the people living in this fallen world in the Old Testament, it says they longed for that heavenly country. They longed for another city. Their hope was not in an earthly kingdom. They longed for heaven. And what the Bible teaches is that when you die, the first thing that will happen is that your soul will be with Jesus in heaven. And... Paul brings us out for example in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 he says therefore we have sorry verse 8 we are of good courage i say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the lord and so the scripture teaches that when you die and you think about it, David Paulus and died a couple weeks ago and the moment that his body passed his soul was in the presence the conscious presence of the lord this is what Jesus said to the dying thief. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, these are, are glorious truths. It's against those who teach soul sleep, and it also is very much against the false doctrine of purgatory, like you, you die and you get to pay for some of your sins. Christ died for sin, once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, that God our sin has been fully paid for, therefore there will not be any suffering after death for those who are believers. And then the passage that Greg just finished going through is one I'm gonna to touch upon a little bit as well, and he left me plenty of room on the part I wanted to emphasize. It says that in 1 John chapter 3, verse two, it says, when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him just as he is. Now we had some fun with Jeremy title being, I Am a Sinner. I thought it was kind of cool that mine is, I Am a Saint. (laughs) But when Jeremy dies, he will no longer be a sinner, nor will any of us. We will then be like Christ. Our process of sanctification will be complete. In Ephesians 1, it says, we have been chosen to be holy and blameless, and that will be realized. Uh, Our brothers last night brought out some of the possible states of our, our spiritual being. Adam and Eve were able not to sin, but they were also able to sin. They chose to sin with their freedom. After the fall, and this is what Jeremy was talking about, the choice is you sin or you sin worse, right? We were not able not to sin after the fall. Now, when you become a Christian and you're converted, now you're able not to sin, but we're still able to sin. But in glory, you will not be able to sin ever again. The goal of your redemption will have been fully accomplished as you are conformed with Christ. And we pray, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, and just contemplate this. Never again will you be sinfully angry. Never again will you have a lustful thought. Never again will you be fearful, anxious, Never again will we be greedy, gluttonous, jealous, impatient. None of the deeds of the flesh will afflict you ever again. Sin will have absolutely no pull on you. And then positively, you will have a Christ-like character. You will love perfectly every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I left one out. Those are all going to be fully true of you with none of the fleshliness that was before. Then in that day... All pain, death, and sorrow will cease as your soul is in the presence of the Lord. In Revelation 21:4. it says, You will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You will be outside the range of the fiery darts of Satan. Spiritual warfare for you will have ceased. Now, you say, well, what else can we know? What are we going to be doing? What is it going to be like? And this is a mystery, and yet there are a couple places in the scriptures where the veil is lifted. Uh, you think of passages where, uh, in uh, a strange passage in 1 Samuel 7, where Samuel comes back and speaks to Saul. And what we get from that and other passages, you know, when Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration are, are with Jesus, that you will retain your identity you will somehow be recognizable. You will be with the other saints who died in faith. And you will remember some things. In Revelation 6, another glimpse in terms of the, the life of those who have died and yet have not, their bodies have not yet been raised. In Revelation 6 verse 9, it says, when the, Lord, the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony of which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So you have the saints in heaven, uh, the martyrs, they know that judgment has not yet come. They are anticipating that judgment will come. Uh, You see how Jesus says the angels in heaven rejoice over the conversion of one person and I think when we're in heaven we probably will know that too and will rejoice with them. Uh, You'll be able to express yourself as they do here as Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus. You will have communion with God and then you will be happy when Paul says in Philippians 1, a very famous passage, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he says to depart and to be with Christ is very much better. Uh, you will be happier then than you can even comprehend in the present. You will enjoy rest. And yet, this intermediate state when you die and you begin the full experience of your sainthood is still something temporary. And I'll use an, a real illustration that Randy Alcorn used to make a little modification. But you can imagine... I'll make it a Southern California illustration. Let's say that you had an old adobe house and there was a big earthquake and the whole thing just fell down. And you're promised by your insurance company, they're gonna build you a big new house, totally earthquake proof, beautiful new home, but it's not yet ready. In the meanwhile, they've got a trailer you're living in. Well, the trailer is the intermediate state. It's got what you need. It's the basics of life, it's good, it's better than camping out in your front yard when your adobe house crashed down, but you're looking forward to the big, beautiful new home you're about to live in, and that's a picture of of where we're going to go, because the, the scripture also says, when Jesus Christ returns, your body will be raised, and you will be fully glorified, you will experience the fullness of your sainthood as you dwell with Jesus and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we think about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, and what we will be like, is, is you read the scriptures, the, the, the Bible begins and really ends in the same way. The Bible begins with a perfect creation, an unfallen creation, unfallen man and woman, the tree of life, and and then we ruin it and there's the fall. But at the very end, the things that were lost are regained, and better yet, they're regained never to be lost. Adam was able to sin and able not to sin, but in the end, you will be not able to sin. You'll be righteous with nothing but righteous desires. But there are parallels. You have the tree of life in both places, and Christ has come in his work to restore what Adam has lost in 1 John Also in chapter 3, verse 8, John says, for this reason, let me get it exactly right, for this, I got the verse wrong, for this reason the Son of Man appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. In in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, when it's describing the new heavens and the new earth, it says, there will no longer be any curse. In the book of Romans, it describes how the creation in the present is groaning, anticipating the revelation of us, the children of God, when Christ returns again. And so paradise will be restored. There will be no more sickness or death. In Revelation 21 verse 4, it says, he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. All things will be renewed. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And God will dwell among his people. It says they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. As you picture in Genesis how God walked in the garden. He was there offering perfect close fellowship with Adam and Eve. and, And they forsook that. Well, now that has been gained back. And your body itself will be raised and will be renewed. Uh, this is something really kind of unique in Christianity. Uh, other religions, or you think even back to the Greeks, they kind of viewed the, the, the essence of humanity as being merely your spiritual self and the body almost like a piece of trash to be thrown away or burned. And, uh, but in Christianity, even our tradition of burying our dead is an indication you're treating a body with dignity. When Jesus died, they didn't burn his body. They treated, part of honoring Jesus was to treat his body with care and with love And then that body was raised. And what the scripture says, and there are many places, you can see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, it says, we believe, in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 14, for we believe that if Jesus died and, and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. And so if you die before the Lord returns, your soul and body will be united because to be human, as God designed us to reflect his image, includes both body and soul. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be gloriously transformed then. And then the body you have will be a new body, Philippians 3.20 21, I'll just say, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And so, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 even describes, well, with the relationship of my, my old body to my new body, well, it's, it's the same, and yet it's gloriously transformed, and it's different. One, the analogy in 1 Corinthians 15 is like a seed That uh, it'll be the same person, but it'll be the renewed person with none of the effects of sin, none of the effects of the fall in these new bodies. And it will be glorious even as Jesus' body is glorious. But what happens to our bodies is not just going to happen to our bodies, but it's going to happen to the entire earth. In Ezekiel, it says, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And Jesus, well, in Revelation, he says, he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. That's why Romans 8 is describing how this fallen creation is groaning, yearning for Christ's return, yearning as is, is the whole creation is, is personified as suffering the effects of the fall, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that will be the transformed, just as our bodies will be transformed, they'll be the same, but they'll be different. This planet will be transformed in ways that are just beyond our present comprehension. John Piper says, At the end of the age, there will be cataclysmic events that will bring this world to an end as we know it, not putting it out of existence, but wiping out all that is evil, cleansing it by fire, and fitting it for an age of glory and righteousness and peace that will never end. And as you think about that, just a summary of some of what I've said already the Bible says there will be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more poverty, no more thirst, no more hunger. No more danger, no more fear, no more sin or crime. I guess you won't need locks on your doors that ADT or whoever they are be put out of business. Um, it says, outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. There'll be no more curse, a joy to the world, you know, that no more let sin and sorrow reign, you know, or thorns infest the ground. He he has come in glory to transform the world. There will I mean, be no more divisions. There will be no more Baptist versus Presbyterians. Uh, everybody will be right on that day. Even in eschatology, we will all agree, that will be a miracle. Jesus says there will be no more marriage. He says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but we are like the angels in heaven. That's, that's a mystery to me too. It's hard to imagine when you've been happy in marriage, that your marriage to Christ will transform your present relationship to be as a sister and not as a wife. It's so much against the Islamic view of a sensual paradise. The new creation itself will be glorious. There'll be a great city. It'll be filled with a multitude of people. Uh, Jesus says, uh, just the famous passage in John 14. Read a couple of those verses. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and I, and I will come again and receive you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. It will be home. One author said, when you are in heaven, it will feel more like home than any place you have ever been. I have to admit, even after three years in North Carolina, when we come here, we feel more like home than we do in North Carolina. No offense to our dear friends in North Carolina. But heaven will be, feel so much more that way. It'll be this is where I belong. Others have said that the best experiences you have in life, and for us as believers, when you sing the glory of God with a congregation of believers, you read his word, you you sense the fellowship of the saints, this is like a foretaste of heaven. As we said, God will dwell with us. You know, the psalmist is the deer pants for the water brooks. My soul longs for you. We we don't have the fullness of the presence of God now. Sometimes we even have an experience of being distant from God. You will never say that in the same way in the new heavens and the new earth because God will always be present with you. You will see Him face to face, as we read in 1 John 3. It will be glorious. So, well, what am I going to do? And Huck Finn. Uh, he talks about Miss Watson who went and told me about the good place. She said, all a body would have to do there is walk around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. I didn't think much of it. (laughs) David Lloyd George says, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where there would be perpetual Sundays from which there would be no escape. The Bible says you will find rest in a world of struggle, of conflict, a world in which you can't get everything done and you feel frustrated. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, they may find rest from their labors and their deeds follow with them, Revelation 14. You will never again be rushed. You will never again be overwhelmed. You'll never again feel guilty because you didn't do everything everybody else wanted you to do. You didn't please everybody and you won't be bored. It's going to be a place of joy and fulfillment for the believer. In your presence, the psalmist says, is the fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures evermore. Isaiah declares, therefore, the redeemed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting in Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. When you read Revelation, you see these pictures of a multitude giving praise and honor and glory to God. And as I think about that, and thinking about Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, I realize I will be changed so that I can't get enough of it. <laughs> All of us can be tempted to be bored in church. Quite frankly, some of you have been here for two and a half days listening to messages, and you think, what on earth could possibly be said that hasn't already been said? You, you have a capacity, and I have the privilege of being the last guy when the cups are already overflowing, <laughs> and half the people have left. <laughs> But your capacity for praise to God will so be enlarged, you will never tire of it. It will just bring you greater and greater joy. Your nature itself will be changed. One author said, you know, we're we're enthralled by excellence. You can fill a stadium with 100,000 people to see some guy who can throw a ball, you know, 50 yards and hit the hands of another man, or you can fill a concert hall to see a great musician perform, or you can fill a stadium, I guess, to see... Mediocre musicians perform. Um, but in the presence of the excellence of God, we will never be bored. We will always be amazed. We will even be learning. God is infinite. We will never fully comprehend him. Sam Storms is right. We will be constantly more amazed at God, more in love with God, and thus even more relish his presence in our relationship with him. And we will serve him. Revelation 22, verse 3. It says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Servanthood isn't something that ends with this life. We've had so many people who have served us so well in this conference, and it's humbling to me how many have done that. We will all be servants of God, and I don't know exactly what we'll be doing. I don't know if we'll be having conferences or what we'll be doing. But it will not be unimportant, and it will be to the glory of God. We're not going to be sitting around on puffy clouds playing harps and eating grapes. Jesus said, my father is working even till now. Uh, Work is not a bad thing. Work is a cursed thing because of the fall, but now it will be blessed. And, you know, Abraham Kuyper has the famous quote, there's not one inch in the entire area of human life about which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And we were given the world in which to have dominion. Actually, it's amazing what humanity has done in spite of the fact that we are fallen, when you look at technology and progress and you know, what happens even in our lifetimes, the transformations is we're imaging God and, and creating dominion, but can you imagine without the fetters of our sinfulness and our mortality, what can and will be accomplished in the new heavens and the new earth? Now again, there, some of you will need to find new work. There probably will not be lawyers, uh, <laughs> tax accountants, dentists, uh, doctors, or insurance agents. And you will reign with Christ as he reigns. You will receive an inheritance. There will be no more corruption in politics. Jesus Christ has come to make humanity great again. (laughs) To make the earth great again. It's been a mess for several thousand years. And it will be truly great. So to summarize the first part of my message, you have as a saint... You have a great future to look forward to. You will one day be a new person in a new world. You will be completely sinless forever. I want to raise a question before I move on. If you were to die today, are you confident that you would be part of the new heavens and the new earth? There's a man, and I don't have time to preach my whole sermon on this, but I want to bring it out in Luke 23. There's a man, he's called the thief on the cross, and when his companion was mocking Jesus, he said, don't you see that we are under the sentence of death justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. And in that story, you think, well, here's a man we know is in paradise. How do you get there? How, do you, how can you enter into heaven? Well, that man recognized just a couple of very clear things that you need to recognize about yourself. And it's things we've already talked about in the conference. He realized he was a sinner. He saw Jesus was innocent, but he saw, he says, I deserve, along with my companion, I, I'm a bad man and I deserve the punishment I'm getting. I have no complaints. He even says, do you not fear God to his companion in the sense that he says, you know, he realized that, His punishment was not likely to end on the cross. He realized he would have to face God and it would be worse. That despite what human justice had done to him in crucifying him, he feared standing before God. And we would call all of that repentance. He acknowledged himself to be a sinner and he was turning from his sin. Then he also, looking to Jesus who was next to him, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. He realized Jesus is the holy one. And then he had faith to believe. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus is a king. Not many people in that moment believed Jesus was a king, right? He didn't look like a king. Here's uh, one of the theologians said that in that moment, one commentator said that that criminal might have been the greatest theologian in the entire world. Because he believed Jesus is innocent, though Roman and Jewish justice found him guilty. And he believed Jesus would reign as a king. And one more thing that he believed that was the most amazing of all, he believed that Jesus would forgive him and allow him into his kingdom. That takes great faith. He had nothing to offer to Jesus, right? He couldn't couldn't say, I'll be better starting tomorrow. He's going to be dead tomorrow. His life up until then had been nothing but sin and a waste. But this is the greatness of the grace of Jesus Christ, that if you will acknowledge yourself to be a great sinner who deserves the wrath of God, If you will look to Christ, the innocent Son of God who came into the world to die on the cross, and if you will believe in him, his grace is sufficient to forgive you all of your sin, that you can be completely certain based upon his merit and not yours, that when you die, be it today or 50 years from now, you will be with him in paradise because it's by his work and not yours. Heaven is so glorious. It's been such a privilege so far. I'm not done, but it's been such a privilege so far just to describe the glorious future of the saints of God's people. But it's also true that it's appointed a man once to die and after this comes judgment. Death is not the end. You will face God. And if you face God in your sin, having rejected Christ, you will be punished forever. Hell is as bad as heaven is good. But if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you, and you will be his child, adopted, you will have an inheritance, and you can know with certainty because of him you will be in paradise. I realize now's maybe a good time for an altar call or something, but I've got more of the message. I will say this, if you are concerned about your soul, there's a bunch of pastors in the room. Talk to one of us. We would love to tell you more about Jesus Christ. But then we have this glorious future. So what? Well, what we are, I'm sorry, what we will be, our destiny as saints affects how we live now. And this is something, this is a really big deal to me because I've lived my 40 plus years as a Christian, and I've seen Christians squabble over their interpretation of Bible prophecy. And I, I do think we need to take all of the Bible seriously. But I think sometimes people are straining at points that aren't the most important, and then they're missing the most important. And one year, I actually I have a practice of reading through the entire Bible every year. And one year, as I read through the Bible, I decided I'm going to try to notice everything the Bible says about the future, about eschatology, and I'm gonna ask myself, what is the purpose of this passage? And as I did that, I certainly realized there is data in those passages that would give you an idea of whether you wanna be an Amill, mill pre-mill, post-mill, pre-trib, mid-trib, all-trib, you know, you know, pan-millennial, it'll all pan out, all the different positions people have. But to me, what jumped out at me is there were two applications that even the book of Revelation, it was written to a suffering church to give them hope. They didn't see all that come to pass in their lifetime, but it was, it was to help them. And so I'll give the whole rest of the message away that I see that in the Bible, the, the, the return of Christ and the, the reality of our destiny as saints perfected, living in the new heavens and the new earth, has two major applications. One is it enables us to endure in the midst of suffering And two is that it motivates us to holiness now. And on those things we can all agree. You know, there's some people who, there's a saying in English that's not in the Bible that some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. And yet, as I read scripture, uh, I see that we are to be heavenly minded C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find the, the Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought the most about the next world. What you believe about the future affects how you live now. Uh, they found a letter of instruction for one of the 9-11 bombers. And the promise that he had, if he carried this through, that he would you know, be with the women and all the... But that motivated him to do something, in that case very evil, his anticipation of an afterlife... Well, the Bible tells us we should anticipate the future. Just one passage in Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. And in the context, as you keep reading What Paul says is is that then he says, therefore, therefore in light of what? Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ is in glory, you're to think of him in glory, and therefore because of the fact that when he is revealed, you will be revealed to them in glory, in light of your future full expression and experience of being a saint, now consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And, and he goes on and describes how we should put aside anger and wrath, and we should put on love. And, he, and so he's saying that the certain hope of our heavenly destiny is a motivation to change how we live now, to stop living our old life, the old self that has died, as was brought out from Romans 6 before, and to live this new life we have In Christ. And it's actually in many of the passages, and in the very passage that Greg used in in 1 John 3, which is one that I dearly love and we fought over a little bit when it came to preparing our messages. But he says that when he appears, verse 2, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's the glorious hope of the, the transforming image of Christ, that when we see Jesus, we will be made to be like Jesus. But then he makes the application and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John is saying, like Paul is saying, is the contemplation of your future destiny as a glorified saint transforms how you live now. Uh, Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter 3 where he says, you know, if the whole world is gonna be destroyed by fire, (laughs) and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, what kind of people ought we to be in the present? People who are not living for this present world, but people who are living for glory. It's, it's just throughout the scriptures. In the, even in the First John chapter 5, we often, often quote first John second, sorry, second Corinthians 5, we often quote ch- verses 8 and 9 independently of each other. They happen to be next to each other for a reason. When he says in verse 8, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be home with, with the Lord, That's our future, I anticipate being with the Lord. But then he says, therefore, in light of the fact he's saying that we prefer to be with the Lord, we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So he's saying the anticipation of future glory, the anticipation of sainthood, fully expressed, motivates us now to pursue holiness, to be particular in that. I think it's also going back to John. He says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Uh, if you're an English teacher, what ten, what, what, what is that? It's, it's, it's not an imperative. He doesn't say purify yourself. He says, it's indicative. Everyone who has this hope, of course he purifies himself. If you really have the hope of the return of Christ and your destiny That will necessarily contribute to your sanctification. Meditating upon the return of Christ. Thinking about our future and how great and glorious it will be. It also should be a motivation to devote this life to enhancing our future happiness in heaven. That's where Jesus talks about don't store up treasures on earth right, where rust and moth destroy and thieves steal, when Revelation talks about the the, the fine linen, which is the, the prayers and the good works of the saints. It's the famous quote by Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jonathan Edwards says that it becomes us to spend this life not only as a journey. Sorry, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? And then he resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Uh, psalm 90 actually is a very important psalm to me. It's the psalm of Moses, and it's where he says, teach us to number our days, that we may present a heart of wisdom. We may have 70 or 80 years it says, establish the works of our hands. That's really the psalm that convinced me to move to Charlotte because the question was, how can we be most useful in our age in whatever years we have left? If we've got 20 years left, where could they be best spent most usefully for the most fruitfulness? That he's, we, we want God to establish the works of our hands. Or the motivation of heavenly glory is, I want to do things in this life for which I will be glad for eternity. So eschatology is really kind of practical, isn't it? And then the certainty of our heavenly destiny enables us to endure present suffering. I already read in Revelation 6 when the martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And there were more martyrs to come. In John, we saw the world does not know us as children of God because they did not know him. And and we're the the castoffs in the world, and in that day, God's people were suffering. Uh, there was great persecution which broke out in the early church. As I mentioned last night, I had the privilege of spending both the last two Januarys a chunk of time in China, and actually, this is a tie made in China, but actually bought in China, in a little, the only Christian bookshop I've ever found there, which may be closed soon. It's got a little fish on it, but it's to remind me of the believers in China where you have pastors who are just trying to shepherd their flock, where the pastor, his wife, the other church leaders are sitting in jail today just because they're gathering with the people of God and ministering the word. They want to be respectful of the government, but they know they must obey God rather than men, so they're trying to preach the word, shepherd their flock, walk with Christ, and the government is systematically trying to eliminate any belief in that country that has an allegiance to something higher than the government and the party itself. And because these people have the first allegiance to Christ and under Christ, they seek to respect the government. Uh, they're being imprisoned. Their churches are being taken away. Their buildings are being destroyed. They're trying to break them. And you say, how long, Lord? Well, one day that will end. Uh, last year, we had here at our conference, Antiev, maybe some of you remember him from Nigeria, a very happy, smiley man. He was actually, he's a church leader from there, and he's given the testimony of how his house was burned to the ground with his children in it uh, by Islamic terrorists who were trying to drive him out of that part of the city. His children survived, but he spent hours not knowing if they had made it. And worse things are happening all over Nigeria and other parts of the world where our brothers and sisters are suffering. I mean, I know, you know, in the United States, it's harder to be a Christian now, but we hardly can comprehend what it is for other people. I mean, I showed last night the picture. Well, if the authorities come, hide behind this wall and we'll hope they may take us and you'll survive. That was their attitude. Uh, There is much evil and injustice in the world, but we have a hope. We have a hope in spite of the fact sometimes we're tempted to think when we're suffering, how can God be on our side when bad things like that keep happening? Even in our own countries, you see evil prevail and you see worse and worse things happening and you see uh, the wholesale killing of unborn children. You see people losing their jobs because they believe marriage is a man and a woman and, and you're frustrated and you're like the psalmist in Psalm 73 where he says, I, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then he says, he, he, he uses his eschatology, he says, then as I entered into the presence of God, I saw their end. The justice of God is a comforting doctrine, and there will be justice in that day. In 2 Thessalonians, in chapter one, he says, in verse six, it is, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give Relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to all who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at by all who believed." very famous passage in, in Romans chapter eight, it's the very passage where he had been talking about the creation is groaning, but he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I have to confess, as I spoke in some of the house churches in China, and I was talking to the pastors, and some of those guys could get out of the country, they, they have the papers, they could leave, they could take the church deeper underground, but they are determined to continue to do what they're doing, to be faithful to what they believe their calling is, to assemble, to worship, to evangelize. They've been questioned, they've been harassed, they've had their property taken away, but nothing will stop them. Why is that? It's their eschatology. I'm not saying, well, they're good premillennialists or amillennialists. They believe Jesus is coming again. And there's nothing more urgent than to carry on his work in his church, to preach the gospel. And they're not afraid of going to prison for a season in light of the glory that is yet to be revealed when Christ returns. And so eschatology, and that's what I think the whole book of Revelation is about. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but it's written to a suffering church declaring the ultimate triumph of the Lamb, and that all those who are united to him will be in glory, every tear will be wiped away, and whatever we have suffered will seem to be light and momentary. It will be great. And I have one more implication before I finish, and that is that the the knowledge of the realities of the future, the the knowledge of the reality of your future as a saint, and also the knowledge of the reality of judgment for those who are not, should motivate us to proclaim the gospel. Don't you think? I think it's interesting in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Here is the rich man in in the parable, and he's in torment. Yet, What does he want to do? Can I go back and warn my brothers? Uh, Can you send Lazarus back to warn my brothers? No. I mean, if someone who is reprobate, suffering under under wrath, is concerned for his siblings, how much more should we who have been rescued from wrath be concerned for all these people around us who right now have turned their backs on God? The, the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of the glory for those who turn to Christ with their sins being forgiven and being made saints and adopted children of God, that should motivate us to have the desire to share our faith with those who have no hope. Um, what you believe about the future affects what you do in the present. Suicide has become a growing problem and issue in our country. And I think one of the reasons is people have no hope. I have a, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a story of Hunter Thompson. He was a writer for the Rolling Stone. He was a friend of celebrities. At 67 years of age, he committed suicide. And basically, the reason was the things he lived for weren't worth living for anymore. If tennis is your life, one day you won't be able to play tennis anymore. If popularity is your life, if Accomplishment, whatever it may be, whatever you seek comfort in, it's going to fail you. The hope we have is a blessed hope that even with old age, even with loss in this life, we have something to be gained because our, our names are re- recorded in heaven and in that we can rejoice. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia with your kids, and I'm just going to close with a couple quotes. And at the end it says, As for this, This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, there was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before." When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you chose us to be holy and blameless, that you sent your son, that by his redemption, our sins have been paid for, that we have now been made children of God by the renewing of your spirit we thank you that you are working even now in this life as we struggle to sanctify us, to purify us, to conform us to Christ. And we thank you that we have a blessed hope that one day we will be with him. We will see him face to face and we will be like him. Lord, help us to live in light of that hope. For those here who are suffering, we pray, O oh God, that you would grant them comfort and the sure knowledge that that suffering will end and one day will be almost forgotten because of the glories that we will experience in the presence of the Lord. Lord, as we struggle against sin, help us to fix our mind on things above, to anticipate the vision face-to-face with our Savior, to live in light of that reality, and help us to pursue holiness and to put off sin. And help us to share this truth with others as we have opportunity to counsel, witness, Lord, that. These truths would be used by you through your word to be life transforming. We pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at IBCD.org.